Well, I can't believe we've got a retreat coming up already in about a month and a half. Um, Speaker Priolo has been a wonderful, uh, just a, a gift from God to all of us. And I can't wait for all of us to gather together and uh, gather around the Word of God and grow and just benefit together. You know, thinking about Cornerstone, we just have so many uh, teachings, just week in and week out, month in and month out. I read this week about Michael Phelps. You guys know who he is, that Olympic swimmer, won numerous gold medals uh, in the past Olympics, he set world records. Uh, he's contending for numerous medals uh, in the upcoming Olympics as well. They were asking him what is, what's the most difficult thing about training for the Olympics, training as a swimmer. And Michael Phelps said, is uh, eating. The most difficult thing is eating. He has to eat at least 10,000 calories a day to maintain his body weight. Anything less, he loses weight and he gets slower. So anytime he's out of the water, he's eating. Sometimes in the water, he's eating. And he eats anything and everything. Anything and everything just to get the calories in. That's my dream. <laughs> I'm going to go swimming this week <laughs> with a burger in my hand. All right? So he's passionate about eating because he's working so hard, training so hard. Well, that's the, that's the experience here at Cornerstone, experience of all the believers here. We're not just learning the scriptures in theory. We're not just investigating the claims of Christ and the, and the instructions of scripture just to grow in our knowledge if that were the case, you know, one hour a month would suffice for us. But I believe for many of us, we are practitioners of the Christian faith. We are about living out the Christian faith, living it out in every sphere of our lives. So we're working so hard that we're not getting enough of God's Word to maintain our pace in the Christian race. That is why we're so desperate to come on Sunday mornings, to gather on the Word of God, to hear God's Word. That is why we don't run away right at the first hour. We don't speed to our cars. We linger around for second hour for in-depth training in God's Word. That is why we gather around during the week, midweek flocks, to apply the Scriptures to our lives and practice one another's. We gather for retreats and so on and so on because we are practitioners and we understand we come because we desperately need it. Without the Word of God given to us, we will wither away. We will lose weight. Our spiritual muscles will atrophy and we will lose our pace in the race. So that is why we have these opportunities for the retreats. Gather on the Word and hope that you are coming to the retreat not because of obligations to man, not because of anything else, but because you're just going so hard in your race towards Christ. You come hungry for the Word of God, because you and I were both so desperate for God's truth. Well, our part three sermon on the Apostle Paul. Last week was kind of an interesting sermon. It's because, I don't know if you guys got it, but it was like, you hear someone's testimony, someone's story, and they tell you where they, was, where they were born, when they were born, and who they were born to, and they tell you their family background, and they tell you when they first heard the gospel, and they, they stop. And you would feel like, man, that wasn't a real good testimony. That wasn't a complete story. Well, that's what happened last week. If it was up to me, I would have given a two-hour sermon last week and finished the whole story. But I don't want to embitter anyone at Cornerstone. I don't want to provoke anyone to anger. So we had to cut it in the middle and we're not even going to finish today. We're going to cut it like in the middle of, the, of part two. And in two weeks, we'll finish out Paul's testimony. Paul, Paul's testimony. And what more can we say? What an incredible demonstration of God's grace. Acts chapter 9 should be a chapter that all of us are well familiar with. Because all of us, 
in some way, some measure, find ourselves in Acts 9, if you're a believer. Now, we're, of course, we're not Apostle Paul. We're not on a road to Damascus. We're not going to kill Christians. Right? Of course, the details are different, but really the inner man, in our salvation experience, we could in great measure identify with Saul from Tarsus. How he was blind to his sins. He was righteous in his own eyes and he was right in his own eyes in every way. And he didn't dictate the time that he would be saved, the circumstances, the manner, the place. God did it all and he's a recipient of God's grace and God saved him. Before you know it, he's living for the Lord in truth. All of us, if you're Christians, you can identify with that testimony. Such testimonies abound in church history. I'll just highlight a few. Just to show how God is continuing to work today in our, in our time. Such testimonies are not just for New Testament church or the book of Acts. The same God, the same Holy Spirit, the same scriptures that worked in Paul's life is working, operating today in, in, in our dispensation, in our time period. To show that God's faithfulness continues to this day and to our generation. The first testimony I want to share with you briefly is uh, John Newton. This is from John Ensor's book, The Great Work of the Gospel. On March 9th, 1748, John Newton was in the midst of a violent storm at sea. Gigantic waves pounded and thrashed the ship, the Greyhound. One side of the ship was so battered and the water was rushing in so fast that the men despaired of their lives. All men were prepared to die. It was, it was that desperate. It was that, that horrific, including Mr. Newton. He was only 23 years old. He had been raised by a godly mother, but she died when he was 7 years old. His exposure to any earnest Christian faith ended there. At 11, John's dad took him to the sea. By the time he was 23, he had a wide, well-founded reputation for being lazy, lustful, rebellious, and crude. He despised the weakness of Christians, and he loved to destroy the faith of any sailors who came on board. He prided himself and being the instigator of everything obscene, he wrote, My life was one of continual godlessness and profanity. I did not know that I ever met a man with a mouth more vile than my own. Looking back on his youth, Newton later wrote, Not only did I sin, but I got others to sin with me. The ship's captain was especially offended by Newton's crude and blasphemous jokes against the Christian faith, when the storm hit, the captain cursed him as their Jonah. The other sailors would have gladly thrown him aboard, overboard. The captain knew that if he could not turn the ship around to ease the stress on the battered side, they would sink with the next gigantic wave. According to Peter Masters' biographical sketch of Newton, it reads, Newton turned to look at the flooded area of the ship which he had been pumping, he said to himself, if that won't do, the Lord have mercy on us. Suddenly, for the first time in years, his blasphemous words seemed to bite back at him. He thought, what mercy do I deserve? The answer seemed painfully obvious. The color drained from his face and his mocking, arrogant manner gave way to deep fear and clamoring thoughts. How could he face the God whom he had insulted for all his life? He began to feel crushing despair. But the ship did not sink. The calm returned, but God stirred an inward storm. In the privacy of his quarters, Newton read the Bible, searching to understand what hope he might have had have for obtaining God's forgiveness. Godly sorrow was indeed producing true repentance. He had been a hater of God, a vile man who was once a captain of a slave ship. God made a divine appointment with him. He didn't choose the time, the manner, 
the place, the circumstance. God had preordained it. And when it was according to God's timing, God's will, in His helpless state, God had mercy upon His soul. You don't know, he, this is the man that wrote that famous hymn, hymn, Amazing Grace. Years later, after becoming a pastor, he sat down, and I am certain, thinking about his salvation testimony, penned these beautiful words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was right and righteous in my own eyes. But I was, I see, full of sin. I thought I had sight, but I was blind. Now I truly see. His gravestone. This was, this was what was written in his gravestone. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all capital letters, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That same God, same gospel, that saved Apostle Paul, saved Newton. One other man I was going to share about, Aurelius Augustine, but we, we shared that maybe a month and a half ago. Lived in immorality, a philosopher, a hater of God, living in debauchery, and God saved him. A man named Mel Trotter. Unbelievable guy. He was a barber by profession and a drunkard by perversion. So debauched had he become that when his young daughter died, he stole the shoes she was to be buried in that he might pawn them for money to buy more drinks. One night, he staggered into the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago and heard the word of God, heard the gospel. He was, he was saved by God. He didn't plan this. He didn't expect this. He didn't make an appointment with God. God did it all. God saved him. He was burdened for the men of Skid Row. He opened a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He went on to found more than 60 other missions in the inner city. Chain of them stretching from Boston all the way to San Francisco. God's saving and sanctifying grace. It is, in a word, amazing, amazing grace. It begins according to God's will. But when it captures a man or woman's heart, it transforms him and it continues to operate in his heart until his death or the day of Christ. It's amazing that nothing a man does prior to Christ disqualifies him from serving Christ. Nothing he does disqualifies him for salvation. Nothing that he does disqualifies him for ministry. We see the premier example of that in the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Think about it. The amazing grace and the providence of God. God saved the man, the centurion, who murdered his son to display his grace and mercy. And then what does God do? God saves the man who murdered the first Christian martyr. Right? God saved the centurion who killed his son, and then the man who was responsible for the death of the first Christian martyr for the Christian faith, Stephen. God chooses him and saves him. I mean, what can we say except lift our hands and praise God? What an infinitely merciful God is God of the Scriptures. God, in His rich mercy, saved that man. In the Scriptures, post-ascension, 
Christ ascended bodily into heaven in Acts 1.11. After that, He only appeared to three men. Only appeared to three men. The last man He appeared to is the Apostle John in the island of Patmos in Revelation 1. That's the close of the canon of Scripture. To close the canon, He gives them an apocalypse, a revelation, a disclosure of future events. He's the last man He reveals Himself, appears to. Only two other men see for themselves the ascended Christ. Right After the resurrection, Christ appears to many men, over 500 men. After the ascension, only three. I hope this makes sense. Apostle John is the last. The first two are connected to one another. The first man to see the risen and ascended Christ standing at the right hand of God is Stephen. Acts 8, right? Acts 7. Stephen sees the risen, ascended Christ. Who is the second man? It's Apostle Paul. Right? So Christ saw Stephen murdered by Saul and then Christ saw Saul and saved him. Saul and Stephen are by are connected in that way. Amazing grace and providence of God. And this um, chosen instrument of God, Apostle Paul, is uh, the chosen apostle to herald the gospel of God's grace, the Gentile world. His conversion is the greatest post-resurrection event in Christian history. His conversion. We owe so much to this great and humble apostle. We are fascinated by this man. So we began an introduction of the apostle Paul last week. And you know, you want to get to know, know someone. Like you want to get to know, you meet someone for the first time. You don't ask him about heart issues. You don't ask him personal questions right away. You got to go to the pleasantries, right? You got to ask about, so, what's your name? All right? Then, what's your Chinese name? What's your Korean name? What's your, I don't know, Armenian name? Whatever, right? What's your middle name? Where are you from? So on and so forth. And then after a few hours of that, then you can get to the heart issues, the true identity of the person. Well, that's what last week was all about. We can't bypass that. If you want to really get to know Apostle Paul, we have to know these basic truths about this man. That Saul is his Hebrew name, and that Paul is his Greek name. It's not the Greek version of the Hebrew name. You'd be very mistaken to call him, or to think that. Uh, You would have to know that he was a young man in his conversion, maybe around 42 years old, maybe 40, 42 years old. He was from Tarsus, not from Jerusalem. He was from a modern Greek city at the time, a Hellenized city. This is not, maybe not important, but somewhat important. He was physically unimpressive. Right? So for guys like me who are vertically challenged, that's very encouraging, right? that the man inside has no connection with the man outside. Right? So you could be a big man on the outside, but be a small man on the inside. Right? But Paul was a small man on the outside, was a spiritual giant. He was a Roman citizen, so he had great privileges, great rights. He could walk with a swagger all over the Roman Empire because he was a citizen of Rome. He was, by race, a Jew, but not just by race. He was, by his culture and language, a Hebrew. That's why he said in Philippians 3, Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not not a Hellenized Jew. I don't eat lobster and crab. I I don't eat cheeseburgers. I don't mix dairy products with meat. I'm a kosher Jew in every way. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was steeped in religious training, a devout student of the, of the law of God. He was a Pharisee. Now, those are some of the pleasantries. Today, we'll attempt to get a little below the surface of this great apostle. 
the next description of, of, of the apostle in his own words is according to Acts 22.3. Acts 22.3. Apostle Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Very important. Gamaliel was the leading teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the leaders of Israel. And he was the rabbi, one of the foremost teachers in Israel at the time of the Torah. He was brought up in Jerusalem under to be educated by Gamaliel. So approximately at the age of 13, from Tarsus, Saul's dad called him to pack his bags. He's going to Jerusalem. Perhaps stay with his sister who was in Jerusalem to... Uh, sit under the great teachings of this man. Gamaliel was called, quote, the beauty of the law because of his marvelous ability to teach. He was so revered that when he died, the people said that reverence for the law died with him. Saul studied under this brilliant man. The age 13. The course of his study would involve memorizing great portions of the Old Testament, if not at least the entire Torah, just verse by verse. Genesis 1 on to the end of Deuteronomy. He would become quite scholarly in terms of his knowledge of the Old Testament. He would sit in question and answer sessions with his tutor. What we did with Marcus and Bob, ordination, that was his weekly practice. Sit with other students, sit with the leading teachers of, the, of Israel, sit with Gamaliel, and go Q&A, Q&A, in the scriptures, quoting verbatim God's word in Hebrew. What a resume this man had. Young man, saw Paul Tarsus, Roman citizen, Hebrew of Hebrews, steeped in religious training, devout student of the law of God, educated at the feet of the leading teacher of Israel. Paul was very proud of all these descriptions, accomplishments. Paul was very proud. I'm sure he held each of them with much personal pride. Paul's next self-description was held by him, not with pride, but with much shame, with much guilt. The next description is given to us by Paul himself several times in the New Testament. And it's the phrase, persecutor of the church. Persecutor of the church. By his own repeated account, Paul's relationship to the young church was that of an opponent, of a persecutor, 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul said, I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1.13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. Philippians 3.6, as to zeal, this is my proof. How zealous I was for the law of God. I was a persecutor of the Christian church. First Timothy 12, 12 and 13, I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So, I believe it's both and. It was by, by, by his choice, but it was inescapable. He could not forget what he did prior to his salvation. 
He could not forget the pit from which God saved him from. He could not forget the, the evil deeds that he committed, but the evil heart that prompted his evil deeds. Just a, his, his self-righteousness, his pride, his, his boast, his confidence in the law and himself, his hatred of God and God's law, how all of that moved him to go against God. He could not forget that until his final breath. I believe if he had a choice of what to put on his grave marker, the first one he would put is not his Roman citizenship, that he was from Tarsus or his Hebrew of Hebrews. Much like John Newton, he would say, persecutor of the church, never forget this shame, this humiliation, this awful memory that I cannot wipe out from my memory banks, that I oppose God and oppose God's church. Let's uh, go to the book of Acts and uh, see the germination the beginnings of Paul's opposition of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 5. Set it up quickly for you. Acts 2 is Pentecost. Acts 4, Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. And a paralyzed man says, can you help me? And they say, Peter says, silver or gold I don't have. But what I have I will give to you in the name of Christ. Rise up and walk. This man leaps and praises God and starts professing the name of Christ. A great controversy occurs and the apostles are, are punished. They're, they're warned. They, and then in Acts 5, they have imprisoned the apostles. Verse 18, because they are proclaiming the name of Christ, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. At daybreak, they entered entered the temple and began to teach. When the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council. And they sent sent the men to have them be brought to them. When the officers came, they did not find them in prison. They returned and reported, verse 23, we found the prison securely locked. The guards standing at the doors, when we opened them, we found no one inside. They were greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, verse 25, these men are not hiding. They didn't run away. Look, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple publicly before everyone, and teaching them. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, that's just awesome, isn't it? We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So they had no authority. They had no legal right. They were so inflamed with with wrath and anger, they wanted to murder them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, verse 34, here he is, same man who was a teacher of Saul, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these people, with these men. And he talks about recent history for before these days, Thetis rose up claiming to be somebody. 
You guys remember that? And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, the Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the day of the census. He drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, my counsel, my opinion is this. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This is not biblical counsel. This is Gamaliel's pragmatic advice. So they took his advice. They called the apostles, beat them, empty threats, charged them not to speak in the name of Christ, and let them go. Now, verse 41. All these apostles... And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Man, I got beat today. Man, I just got pummeled for Christ. They're praising God. For God was counting them worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. And verse 42, every day, next day they went back to the temple. Next day. In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Really living out verse right, 29. We must obey God rather than man. You beat us, you threaten us, you murder us. We must obey God rather than men. Othi Camillo enters the scene in Acts chapter 5. And he proposes patience and tolerance. He's, an, he's ecumenical. Right? Let's be broad. Let's be open. Right? Let's be pragmatic. Let's wait and see. That was Gamaliel, the leading teacher of Israel's council, and everybody consented to his council advice and followed his course. But Paul's heart was filled with anger. That was Gamaliel's mindset, but it was certainly not Paul's. Paul repudiated this proposal by this respected teacher. Gamaliel said, we can coexist. Paul was saying, no, we cannot coexist. This old man, Gamaliel, has lost his marbles. He's a coward. He's a weakling. He has no love for the law of God. He's not zealous for God's honor. He's not a respecter of Judaism. To this, to Paul, this new movement was a deadly threat to all that he had hold dear. I learned to hold dear. Christianity was a malignant growth in Judaism. It must be cut off. Christianity was blasphemous, was blasphemy, was idolatry, was heresy. And Gamaliel was compromising. He was just in it for self-preservation. Paul would not accept this. He broke from Gamaliel and made his own course. He was resolute to oppose Christianity and destroy it and begin by ensnaring Christians and executing them. But there was one hurdle. The nation of Israel did not have authority to execute anyone. They were an occupied nation. Only the Roman government had the authority to mete out capital punishment. But with many uh, encounters with religious Jews, religious Jews would, would fight for their temple rights. They would go on hunger strikes. They would com- commit suicide en masse. They would protest and fight the death to maintain the sacredness of their temple. The Roman gover- government said, you know, just for the sake of peace, we'll give you religious authority to preserve your supposed holiness of your temple grounds. So any violation of the temple grounds, you can mete out capital punishment. So they had authority. If anyone blasphemed, insulted, reviled the temple, they could stone that man or woman to death. That was their plan for Christ in Mark chapter 5. 
right? Mark 14, excuse me, Mark chapter 14. They hated Christ. They wanted to murder him. They have to trap him in his words. And so when they heard him say, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Oh, we got him. He just blasphemed against the temple grounds. We were bringing witnesses to confirm what he said and we'll stone him. Right, that was the whole drama that was taking place in the Gospels, talking about the temple, because that, that was the only way they could execute Christ. They, brought, they arrested Christ, brought him in, they brought in these witnesses, but they were false witnesses, Mark 14. They could not agree in their testimony. So the testimony did not even agree. They were contradicting each other. So they could not hand out the death penalty for Christ. Right. Well, that was Paul's plan again for the Christians in Jerusalem. He knew if he could get, somehow get them to blaspheme against the temple, he could begin his persecution of them, martyr them, and destroy the Christian faith. Go to Acts 6, verse 9. They knew among the first, in Acts 6, the proto-deacons was a man named Stephen, a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and mighty in the Word, a man who was trained in the Scriptures, who was eloquently refuting others and proclaiming Christ. These men, these Pharisees and leaders of the law gathered together to conspire against Stephen. Now note, in Acts 6-9, some of them were from Cilicia, same synagogue as Apostle Paul saw from Tarsus. So maybe they knew each other and conspired. What you need to do is, more than him to speak in the name of Christ, you need to somehow get him to speak against the temple. Then we can execute him. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and, and said again, just like Jesus, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I believe Stephen knew what was happening. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was prophesying under the direction, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He was proclaiming the gospel. But he was also declaring the end of Judaism. That God had dwelt with the Israelites in the temple, but no longer. After Israel's rejection of their Messiah, God no longer dwells in the temple. Israel is no longer God's people. And that God will begin a new administration, a new dispensation with the local church. Stephen, someone who was deep the knowledge of the law, knew what this meant. He knew by speaking against the temple of God, it would mean certain death. But he understood this was God's will for him. That they had rejected the Messiah, and they had rejected the Holy Spirit, and they had rejected God the Father. See, in my many readings of Acts 7, I never understood why they were so enraged. At the end of Stephen's speech, as I read it, it wasn't that offensive to me. I, it, it didn't warrant such a violent reaction on the part of the, the leaders of Israel. But in light of this background, it makes sense. Verse 44. Acts 7, our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, 
just as he who spoke to Moses brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. It was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, this was music to the leaders of Israel. This was music to Paul's ears. We got him. We got him to blaspheme and insult the temple. And we have the legal right to execute Stephen. In their eyes, their plan worked. They got the proof. Now they can murder Stephen and persecute the Christian faith. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed Stephen into, the, into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed toward him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were giving credit to Saul for this successful plan. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, the connection between the centurion and Saul. As Christ was being crucified, he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He was praying for the Roman soldiers who were crucifying him. Immediately after his death, God saved the centurion. Stephen, as he was being martyred, he prayed to the Father, Lord, do not count these sins against them. He was praying for those who were murdering him. A chapter later, God saved the man responsible for Stephen's death. God answered Stephen's prayer. God did not hold Stephen's or Paul's sins against him. God forgave Paul of this great sin. The Jerusalem Fellowship broke up under the force of this persecution. A great persecution arose in Jerusalem at that day. And persecution was targeted against Hellenized Jews who are not from Jerusalem. The apostles and the Christians who are from Jerusalem, because of their place in the city, did not experience the brunt of the persecution. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, Christians who spoke Hebrew had a relationship with people in Jerusalem, citizens of Jerusalem, stayed in Jerusalem. But all the Hellenized Jews, for them, Hebrew was a second language. For them, Greek culture was familiar. They were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the Feast of Pentecost, and they stayed because of the Christian faith, but they were from outlying areas. They scattered and went back into their hometowns went back to their synagogues. So Paul wanted to focus on these men and women. After persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, he had heard that these men and women were going back to their hometowns, to their back to their home synagogues, and propagating the Christian faith in the synagogues. So he got letters from the high priest, giving him authority, having a list of names men and women who are guilty of blaspheming the temple, to go and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to be charged. The Roman soldiers, because they had the, the Israelites had authority concerning the temple grounds, would acknowledge this authority. 
So acknowledge their right to arrest these people, bring them back to Jerusalem to be charged, arrested, and perhaps even killed. That is what Paul did. He was not, it was not enough for him to just attack Christianity in Jerusalem. All those who had scattered, he was going after them. Well, that is where we leave off. Acts 9.1 will continue that in two weeks. But to close our time, just a few final thoughts to bring our study to a focus uh, for us to leave with and may perhaps apply to our lives. First of all, we get an insight from Paul's background, Paul's life, Paul's um, childhood experiences, insight into biblical parenting, how biblical instruction is established by the parents, begins at home. That for them, the synagogue was a parachurch. Deuteronomy 6, 4, it was the parents' responsibility, it was the father's responsibility to teach his children the law of the Lord to instill these instructions in their hearts every day. And the synagogue, Gamaliel, other tutors came alongside the parents in the training up of their children the law of God. Something for us to learn as parents. Must not outsource the training of our children in the law of God, the church, any parachurches to Christian schools. It is our responsibility. We must be very sober and serious about training up our children in the law of God. Some parents train their children to be uh, football players, even giving them exacting restrictions on their diet that they will perform well on the sports field. They make them train hours on end to blow into a musical instrument or tap some ivory keys or do some physical activity or dance or whatever. As Christians, our foremost training and instruction is in studying the law of God and the application of it in our children's lives. With the discipline the world pursues, and worldly, worldly accomplishments, with that amount of discipline and training, we must um, apply in training our children in God's, God's Word. Let's take that to heart. All the parents here, as you teach your children the law of God, all hard work brings a profit. As you sow unto them God's truth, God's Word, one day, according to God's will, God desires all men to be saved, it will bear fruit. And all that labor and effort and time you put in will just explode in your child's life and will just bring forth a righteous life all to the glory of God. If you have not done so, begin that work today in teaching your children God's scriptures. Another insight in the Jewish mindset of parenting is um, how boys were taught, trained from a young age, they were taught a trade, trade of their fathers. Our Lord Jesus was a carpenter. Learned that from his dad, Joseph. So wherever he went, he had a trade with which he could provide for himself. He had a trade by which he knew how to work hard with his hands, provide for his family. He had one. Peter was a fisherman. He knew how to fish. He knew how to sew and mend and make nets. He knew how to steer ships and, and all of that. He knew a trade to provide for himself and his family so that he would not be dependent upon anyone. Paul, from his dad, learned a trade of leatherworking, tent maker. I mean, he knew how to kill an animal, skin that animal, use that leather stretch it out, right? Uh, 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 dehydrate it under the sun and cut it to make tents or other materials, other, other, other things. He was a craftsman. 
so that he could always provide for himself. And even in ministry, he would not be dependent upon others, dependent upon himself. What a gift their fathers gave to them. There's a dignity, there's an honor where a man can be independent. It takes years for a man to figure out the angles of life, right? To be a businessman or to be a craftsman or to be involved in trade. To know the angles, to figure out how things work and to be, very, to be excellent in one's trade. Well, these fathers and their fathers, their fathers learn these angles, learn these secrets of the trade and pass it down to their children so that they were able to work and provide. And they were, have that this confidence, that that dignity as men to provide for themselves, not be dependent. I think it's something for us to learn, especially for boys. Right? Especially for boys. Right? I'm talking to Seren. We will want that. Right? Maybe teach Ethan. I don't know. I don't know yet. Right? <laughs> I got to learn something. Learn a trade here. Right? Maybe learn a trade and pass it down to him so that wherever he goes, he can do something. Right? Plumbing electrician. We had a guy come to our house. He does um, the Honda mechanic. Right? So he's been doing this for 30 years. He does all the tune-ups, all changes, brake work. The dealerships do. Better cost. I found about, uh, about him through John Co. John Co. has got a Honda that's like 20 years old, still runs perfectly. John, how did you get your Honda Civic 1980s running so well? It's this guy. And, he's, and he came and I, I have, we have brake problems. He looked at our brakes. You know what? You don't need new brakes. You see, if we cleaned them, he cleaned them, didn't charge us for doing our brakes. I was telling Swain, man, as a man, I should learn how to do my own brakes, right? And I said, if Nate can do it, I can do it, right? <laughs> and I could teach Ethan how to do brakes. And he could at least eat, right? He'll never starve. You can do brakes, you'll never starve. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> man, Inside in the parental training for boys. Right. Teach them how to work hard with their hands. Learn a trade so they can provide for themselves. A few more thoughts. Martyrdom does not hinder evangelism. Martyrdom advances missions. Martyrdom. You know, Tertullian said, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of a new church. Every time you kill one of us, a church, you know, church is planted. Kill us, mow us down, torture us, please, right? Because every time you kill a Christian, right, the gospel goes forth. The church is planted and established, and it grows. From the moment Stephen was martyred, it just caused the gospel to flourish. The best thing that the, the Jews did and the Romans did was persecute early Christians. So a great example for us and spread and propelled the gospel. So for us as Christians, martyrdom is not something that we should fear. We should worry about what will it do to the Christian faith? What will it do to Cornerstone Bible Church if one of us were ever to go and on Mexico missions, right? Maybe OC missions. You know, those guys in Irvine are pretty strong and harsh. You know, they're antagonistic to the God. You got to be careful over there. Or BBS. You know, those kids can be very difficult. Right? And one of us are martyred, maybe overseas. Martyrdom is a realistic possibility we have nothing to fear the Bible tells us martyrdom only springs forth brings advances the gospel strengthens the church builds up God's work we see that in Acts 7 through 9 next one we read uh, Paul's testimony causes us to think about our testimonies, does it not? Let me ask you, do you have a testimony? Do you have a testimony? You know, for communion this afternoon, it's only for those who have a testimony. If you don't have one, you can't celebrate the Lord's death, resurrection, ascension with us because more than likely, you're not a believer. All believers have a testimony. Now, you might say, yes, pastor, I have a testimony, but it's not like Apostle Paul. It's not like John Newton. It's not like Mel Trotter. My testimony is kind of just 
mundane. It's kind of boring. It's kind of average, normal. It doesn't move anybody else when they hear my testimony. That's not important. The issue is not when you tell your testimony, does it make others cry? The issue is, the question is, does it make you cry? When you think about your testimony and you state it to others, does it move your heart? When you think about your testimony, do you remember the pit from which God saved you? Do you remember your, your shame, your guilt, the awfulness of your sinfulness before a holy God? Or do you have really a, a distorted memory of your days enslaved to sin? Are you like the Israelites in the book of Numbers where they complained about onions, leeks, and garlic that they had in Egypt and they forgot about the humiliating bondage, the slavery that they experienced under Egypt, how their children were murdered by the Pharaoh's orders, how they were, they were separated from God's laws because they were bound by the, by the Egyptians. They forgot all of that. They just remembered the onions. And they complained against God, rebelled against God. Is that you today? Is your heart full of grumbling and discontentment and lack of satisfaction against God, and you're rebelling against God because you forgo- you've forgotten just a pit of hell that you were living in before Christ saved you. Do you call forth to mind just how horrendously great a sinner you were before God saved you? Therefore, are you filled with just zeal and passion and brokenness before God who saved you from that? When you think of your testimony, does it move your heart? Does it move your heart? And finally, do you rightly magnify your sinfulness so that God's grace is magnified, not yourself? See, Paul magnified his sinfulness not for attention, not to get, not to be the center of anyone's attention, not to be on the spotlight, he magnified his sins only so that God would get the glory. I think some people focus on their sinfulness, past and present, out of uh, self-centeredness because they want attention, because they want the spotlight. That's at the heart of a believer. We bring up ourselves only to bring up Christ all the more. To show that where sin abounded, grace superabounded in the salvation of wretched sinners such as us. I encourage you to read Acts 9. We'll visit that. We'll study that verse by verse. Two weeks. Let's pray. Uh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh, Lord, that is the cry, the loudest voice. We declare that to the world, that we were a wretch in your sight. We were a warm. We were lost. We were blind. We were rushing towards all the lusts of our hearts. But Lord, you stopped us dead in our tracks and you saved us. Not by the force of your right hand, but by the warmth of your love. Through the Holy Spirit, you changed our hearts. You melted our hearts with your love, opened our hearts with your grace, opened our ears with your mercy. God, you saved us. You rescued us, redeemed us by the death of your Son on the cross. Lord, we praise and exalt your name for this. And so, Lord, we humbly pray that we would freely share our testimonies, 
to anyone and everyone who will listen. We would not be ashamed of how you saved us. Lord, why are we so reticent to share our testimonies to the world, to unbelievers, when it should be the boast of our tongues? It should be the first thing we want to talk about, how your grace saved us. Lord, may it be, uh, may you give each one of us an opportunity this week to share with someone and exalt the cross with our personal story of how you delivered us from hell. God, we, we pray that you would, you would soon consider us worthy to suffer for your name. There will be such joy in our church one day soon where we will gather and we will rejoice together because we have suffered for Christ. Maybe even someone has lost their lives because of Christ. And you would grant us that, that holy joy um, to your people here. And that the gospel advanced through and because of that the utmost part of the world. Lord, would you consider us uh, such joy, such privilege, such honor to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.